And there are several times throughout the Revelation account that it's when the four living creatures start worshiping, that's when the elders get the idea, oh yeah, it's time to worship. And they follow the lead of these four living creatures. Look what it says here, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, and then after that the four, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now let's talk about that. Talking about this lamb that had been slain, it's the idea of being violently slain, and of course, he was. The way Jesus was mishandled, beaten and abused even before they nailed those nails into his hands and feet and platted that crown of thorns on his head, spat at him and pulled out his beard and, and beat on him. He was unmercifully slain. But now he is the victorious one. Well, as we think about this song, I want us to focus on this song for just a minute. And I want us to see here, notice several things you might want to jot down about this, about this song. First of all, it is Christ-centered rather than me-centered or I-centered. Now, I want you to think about this over the next few weeks as we sing on Sunday mornings. And I'm, but I want you to kind of just kind of look at the songs that we sing and how many songs that we sing that are focusing on Him. It used to be a lot of the songs that we used to sing in church in days gone by, they were more introspective. They were, they were singing almost to ourselves. Or we were just kind of singing songs, just kind of, you know, we really weren't even, we didn't have to even think about God. But the songs that we sing now, we sing these songs that really are causing us to focus on Him. And that causes some of us to be very uncomfortable because it's really causing us to enter into a whole new level of worship where when we're singing, we're actually thinking about what Jesus did for us and what God is doing for us. And it's a tremendous message that is being shared this is a message. This is a song that is Christ-centered. Secondly, it is filled with the gospel message. It's a, it's a, it's a song of redemption. Thirdly, it's a missionary-minded song. Look what it says there. Have redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A kindred or a tribe speaks of common ancestors. The tongue speaks of a common language. The people speaks of a common race. Nation speaks of a common land. It's a, it's a missionary song. He's redeemed us out of all these different tribes and tongues and people and nation. It's also doctrinally accurate. Now this is another thing for us to always make sure that the songs that we sing are doctrinally accurate. What I mean by that, there's truth in the song. And I want to tell you why this is so important. The reason why people fight over their music, whether it's Christian music or secular music. I mean, guys will fight over whether who's the better group, the Three Dog Night or the Beatles. I mean, people will fight over stuff like that. And I'll tell you why it is. It's because music has a deep emotional connection to it. We get deeply emotionally connected to music. You can think of songs that you used to sing and you still sing them in your heart. 
because you have an emotional connection with that song. Maybe something was going on. Maybe the night you kissed your wife for the very first time, there was a song that came on the radio, and every time you hear that song, it takes you right back to that moment, and it's fresh in your mind. Why? Because of the deep emotional connection that music has to your heart. And this is why music must be doctrinally accurate. Because if we're not careful, if we sing error and we get emotionally connected to error in music, we're going to be just like the little guy last week who learned that 2 plus 2 equals 5. And we're going to believe a lie. And there's a lot of songs, well, I don't know about a lot, but there are some songs that you might like that are not doctrinally accurate. You like them not because they're right, but because they make you feel good. And they make you feel good because you are emotionally connected with that song. And when a pastor or a preacher talks about your favorite song and tells you that it's not doctrinally accurate, I mean, you get kind of, ooh, you get mad. Preacher, don't talk about my song. That's my song. I don't care if it's right or not. I like it. It's why be, that's why we get emotionally connected to song. This song is doctrinally accurate. It's also prophetic. It's a prophetic song. Those songs are powerful when, when they have a, when they have a prophecy component to them. And, they, and we're thinking about, you know, when we sing about heaven, man, that, that's exciting. In fact, Years ago, we were having Senior Adult Day at our church when I was pastoring up in Northeast Tennessee. And for Senior Adult Day, I asked our seniors to, this was like two or three weeks before the Sunday, I asked them to vote on their favorite songs, and we were going to sing those songs in church on Senior Adult Day. I, I, my memory might be failing me here, but at least four out of the five, or at least or all five songs that they picked were songs that had a prophetic heaven message in them. They were looking forward to getting home and being with their Lord. And so songs that have that kind of prophetic and heaven-sent forward-looking picture are powerful. Well, we've got to move on if we're going to get to those seals. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, an innumerable number, the largest number in the Greek language. Well, we have the vastness of all of these people, these angels, these creatures, these living creatures. They're all gathering up there, and man, they're just getting excited. I looked, verse 11 again, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Look at verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, that just means everybody. And all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the word there is Amen, Amen. It's kind of like they just kept on saying Amen. They couldn't quit saying it. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. 
Well, I tell you, there's worship in heaven. Why is all this worship in heaven? When people who have known sin, people and, and even angels who never personally knew sin, but they, they can see what sin does to people and, and how changed they are when they get saved and they become filled with the Holy Spirit and they walk with the Lord and they see that and they get to rejoice. They, As the Hebrew writer says, they love to look into those things because they've never experienced salvation, but they see what salvation does. When, when all that happens, people just, it's just the, the automatic response of the Lamb that's there and the redemption that we're experiencing for praise to happen. Man, they just praise God. Now, what we have found in verses or chapters four and five are, are going to be a stark contrast to what we're going to see in chapter six and following. We're, we're going to see some tough stuff. Several studies as we get on into the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. But here's what I want to share with you. And then we're going to pray and we're going to look at some of these seals. The thing that your family members and friends need to hear, your loved ones need to hear, my loved ones need to hear, my family and friends need to hear is this. The tribulation is going to be terrible. The wrath of God poured out on this earth without mixture is going to be more terrible than our minds can even imagine, even though we're going to read about it in this book. But they don't have to experience that. They can get on the right team. The right team is the team that's going to be up there in heaven, praising God, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and blessing and all that. That's the team your family members and friends want to be on. And it might just be that you're the one that needs to share with them one more time and tell them Jesus saves. He still is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Let's pray for a minute, shall we? We're going to move on. Father, as we come to You right now, I do want to pray right now for the people that we're thinking about right now. People that we've tried to witness to and it wasn't productive or we don't feel like it was productive. For people that we wanted to witness to and we just didn't seem to have the courage to be able to do so. The people that's on our prayer list that live far, far away and we might... It might seem like it's difficult to witness to them. Father, I pray that you would just give us that special measure of courage and desire to be able to sit down with them, even with a quiver on our lips and a tear in our eye to share with them under your anointing, Jesus has overcome. The grave is overwhelmed. The victory has been won. Jesus Christ is the victory. He's not just the way to victory. He is the victor. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And I pray, Father, you would just give us that courage to share your truth in such a way that men and women, moms and dads, brothers and sisters will come to faith in Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, let's move on. On the back of your study guide, we get into the section and the seven-sealed scroll. We're going to see four, four of these uh, seals opened up tonight in the few minutes that we have remaining. Now, look what we have here in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I saw the Lamb. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Now, here's what I want to talk to you a little bit about, and I just want to lay some information out on the table for you just so we can kind of, I can plug it in and we can come back to it at different times throughout our study. We're going to see these seven seals opened up. 
But here's how this drama unfolds as I understand it, as I see it. We're going to see seals open. We're going to see trumpets sounding. We're going to see bowls poured out. And then we're even going to have a mention of seven thunders. Now here's what, here's the way it, it all lays out in, in my understanding and my, as I interpret all this. Within the seventh seal, we're also going to see the seven trumpets. Within the seventh trumpet is when we'll see the seven bowls. And within the seventh bowl is when we hear the mention of the seven trumpets and there's actually a call to John to seal up those things and, and don't even talk about those. Now, I share that with you because as this story unfolds, and I don't want to say story as though it's fiction, it's not fiction. As this account unfolds, there is a telling and a retelling, and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this. And so what I want you to see is if we just kind of read all this chronologically from chapter 1 to chapter 22, that's why this book gets confusing. Confusing. But if you see it as unfolding and kind of like an accordion kind of opening up for us, then you'll see it in a, in a greater way. And as we work through this, I'm going to share with you information down the way that at the moment I share it, it may be a little bit difficult for you to receive, but just hang in there and it'll become clearer. And then in the end, our last 30 minutes, I'm going to give you an overview of this entire book. I'm going to give you an item that you can add to your study notes that will be like a like an airplane tour over this entire book. And you're going to be surprised. There's going to be some blanks on that on that study guide. But by the time we reach there, you're going to be shocked because I would bet that many of you would be able to fill in the blanks without me telling you what's on the blank. And you're going to surprise yourself with how much you know about this book. And never again does this book ever need to be a closed book for you. You can read it and reread it with accuracy, with understanding, and it'll be a book that you can enjoy. All right, let's go on now. Look what he says here. In fact, I want to ask you, if you would, just write down, if you would, we don't have time to get there, Isaiah 13, 6 to 16. Just write that down there somewhere in the introductory area of this, of the back page there of your notes on the seven-sealed scroll opened. Another verse to write down is Malachi 3.2. In Malachi 3.2, here's what we have. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. The idea there, he is going to be pure. It's going to be thorough. As he does his work, it's not going to miss a soul. And so as we look at the seven-sealed scroll open, we see the destiny here of the world. All right, seal number one. Notice verses one and two. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, or one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, or with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now the image here is that of a white horse. The message, this symbolizes a time of peace. A time of peace. Now the rider on the white horse here is a, an illustration of a conquering leader. But what is interesting here, he conquers peacefully. He has a bow, and you would think he would have a quiver full of arrows, but he doesn't have any arrows. He's riding on a white horse, and the picture here is, the imagery is, this leader has the ability to conquer peacefully. 
I listened this week to a documentary of sorts, and it was really kind of eerie. This documentary was doing a, a chronicling of some of the wicked leaders of our past in the world and how they use mind games, hypnosis, trickery, falsehood to get their way across. You, can, you might think of some of the people that were mentioned in this. And you can think of people like Hitler and, and Stalin. And even more recently, how this documentary talked about how people were able to use mind games to trick people into getting their way across. Even some of our leaders today are using some of these same mind games and some of these same tricks to get people won over to their way of thinking. Here we have a situation here where a time of peace is going to be ushered in. There's going to be such difficulty in our world by the time the tribulation period begins, the world will do anything it can do to experience peace. Now here's what's going to happen. We haven't talked a whole lot about the rapture, but we know that right at the end of chapter 3 and chapter and beginning of chapter 4, that's when the rapture takes place. That's the, the end of the church period and, and John gets taken up into heaven which symbolizes the rapture. And here's what's going to happen. As soon as the rapture happens and we're out of here, God in His sovereignty is going to allow this first seal to be opened up and there is going to be peace on this earth. But it's going to be a false peace. Jesus said in His account, My peace I give you, not as the world gives, I give to you. The world is going to be able to give a certain level of peace. And here's what's going to happen. The world's going to say, Finally, those Christians are out of here. They're gone, and we can have a world like we want it. They won't be here bothering us and reminding us of what we shouldn't be doing and what we should be doing. Good, good riddance. We can now have our peace, and that peace is going to happen here. God is going to allow a three-and-a-half-year period of peace on this earth. The Bible talks about, when you look at the Thessalonian letter, the Daniel account, that there's going to be a period of time in the tribulation period, a time of peace. In fact, we'll document this more as we travel through it. But in the seven years of tribulation, the first three and a half years are going to be a time of peace. And that's the period talking about right here. And so right after the rapture happens, this time of peace is ushered in by the opening up of this seventh seal. Excuse me, this first seal of these seven seals. And there's going to be a peaceful conquering here. Now, as we think about this rider on this white horse, some get a little confused on who this guy is. If you would want to jot down there on your notes and compare this white horse and the rider in Revelation chapter 6 and compare him to the rider in Revelation chapter 19, which is very clearly our Lord Jesus Christ, where he has on his thigh the name written, the Word of God, and he's... He's just all the power that's given there. This particular writer has a crown, but it is a Stephanos crown. Stephanos crown means a crown that has been given to someone who won a race, uh, the laurel wreath kind of thing. The crown that the Lord will wear in Revelation chapter 19 is a diadem crown. I, tell you, I was about ready to shout this morning when we sang that song, 
bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. That's, that's the word right there. The Revelation 19, Jesus in Revelation 19 has a royal diadem crown on his head, not because he won some foot race somewhere, but because he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. This particular rider here has a bow and no arrows. In Revelation 19, the rider on that horse has a sword coming out of his mouth. And we've already, we've already pictured that in our study. In Revelation chapter 6, he conquers without war. In Revelation 19, he conquers with righteousness. In Revelation chapter 6, after this time of peace, death follows. In chapter 19, real, everlasting peace follows. So it's quite a contrast of the two. And just encourage you to take some time to look into that. Seal number 2, verses 3 and 4. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Even if you don't really accept my view of the tribulation of three and a half years of peace and then three and a half years of, of, of trouble, you have to agree that there's some span of time between seal one and seal two. Because with seal one, you have peace. A, a peace that the world is going to experience. That's the whole reason for seal number one, to have this kind of universal peace around the world. Well, if it only happened for one day, that wouldn't be, or if one week, or even a month. There has to be a span of time here, and certainly the Word of God reveals to us that span of time to be three and a half years. But here we have at the opening of the second seal now, peace is removed off of the earth. It was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should be, should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. Now, it's interesting here, the word sword refer, it is the word makarii. It, it refers to a dagger, a short bladed sword, maybe six, eight inches, maybe a foot long at the most. But it's all, but it's referred to as a great sword. Great is the word magos, where we get big. So we might think of this as a huge sword, but it's a small sword in the sense it does great damage. Notice what it says here, that there was given to them another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that they, that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. This is the sword of assassination. We read practically or hear practically every night on the, on the news about another death in our area and how tragic it is. As tragic as that is, and, and I don't want, certainly want to ever make light of any death that ever happens, that's nothing compared to what it's going to be like one day. When people are going to be so, this abomination of desolation as, as Daniel talks about in, in, the, in the Daniel account, he stands up in the holy place, in the middle of the tribulation period, and he causes peace to be taken off the earth because he demands, requires worship of him and him alone. We better watch and be ready to listen. We better be listening even in America for leaders who expect and even demand us to worship them. Here's a leader that's going to stand up and, and peace will be removed from the earth and death will be everywhere. They'll kill one another with this great sword. It's going to be tragic, tragic. Seal number three, verses five and six. 
When he opened the third seal, I heard the four, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. And I looked and behold a black horse. He who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Let's talk about this. The black horse, the message here is it symbolizes famine, famine conditions. Three and a half years of peace, peace is taken from the earth and death begins to be just pervasive. And people are just trying to stay alive. They're trying to just keep their livelihood. Work will be less and less. People won't be working. They'll be afraid to go to work. They'll be afraid to do things just to try to keep themselves alive. And with nobody working and the economic crisis just continuing to plummet, famine conditions will set in on this world. And notice it gets so bad, a denarius here is one day's wages. A denarius was a little silver coin, and it was equal to one day's wage. Used several times throughout a Bible to refer to the day's wage of a of a working of a working man or a working woman, and so that's that's the picture. And notice, a person is going to work all day for a little bit of wheat or a little bit of barley. Now, wheat is considered to be the mainstay, the main staple source food, and so a person will work all day for enough wheat for one meal or maybe one day. Now, it also tells us here that you can buy enough barley. You can actually buy three times the barley that you can of wheat. But barley was used and referred to as the food of the poor man. It didn't have as much nourishment. I'm not saying anything about barley today. It might have a good... But in, in this picture, in this imagery, the idea here is that barley was not as nourishing as wheat. And so a guy can work all day to get enough wheat for one meal or enough barley for one day. That's, that's, you know, we kind of eat to live. In fact, for me, eating is a recreational sport. I mean, I, I love it. But in that day, people are going to work just to be able to have food on the table. The idea of food in the pantry, cans and jars and food that you can just pick and say, oh, we want to eat today. That, that's going to be gone because these famine conditions and notice it says then, don't hurt the oil or the wine. Now in our, deal, in our day of oil shortages, we'd like to think this is referring to petroleum, but so far, the best I can figure out, this oil that is referred to is oil that is used as a consumable. Olive oil is the idea. I'm still open to, to making sure I've got that right, but that's where I am right now, I must say, that's what I see. And here's what it seems to be saying is, oil and wine is the food of the rich man. And the, the wording here, the grammar seems to be going out as though there's some kind of international prohibition or international law that will be sent out. Don't do anything that impedes the oil and the wine from free flowing. Here's the picture. The rich are going to have all they need. The poor is going to be the victim. He's going to be at the mercy of whoever is controlling going on in the world in that day. God's going to work all day just to have enough food for one meal or for one day. It's going to be a, a sight you don't want to behold. Finally, let's notice this fourth seal and we're going to stop here. Let's see what we have here. So I looked and behold, verse, verse 7, And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. 
And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, the pale horse would have been an eerie thing for John. I don't know what you think of when you think of pale. But actually, the word pale here is also translated in our Bible as green. This is a kind of, you know when somebody's just really sick, I mean really, and they almost have a green tint to them? That's, that's the picture here. This would have been an eerie sight for John to see this pale horse, this sickly pale looking horse coming forth. And it's just a kind of a yucky, yucky looking color. Because and with this coming out of this, this fourth seal, one fourth of the population. What do we have about six billion on the planet today? Imagine in a short amount of time, a fourth of that six billion people dying. You talk about something you want to miss. You don't want to be a part of this. Well, we've got to stop right there, but there's one more little thing I want you to see in this eighth verse. With all this death, the little sword, people killing each other, the big sword, this this sword here is a, a big sword, a broad sword, kind of sword that they use kind of in the military and swords, or movies like in Braveheart, and the big sword goes big. But notice, if a guy's going to work all day for some wheat and some barley, what are the animals going to eat? Look what he says here, second half of verse 8. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Have a good week. That's, that's not a sight you want to be a part of. You want to make sure that you're on the right team. And I'll see you next Sunday night. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come to you thanking you so much. For our study, I pray, God, that uh, every person in this room is on the right team. Pray, God, that if not, if there's somebody here in this room needs to be saved, that they'll even right now, before they leave this place, just drop to their knees and say, Oh, dear God, forgive me of the lie that I've been living. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me by the power of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross for me. Save me right now, please. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.